All right, if we can regather for our uh, second hour. As I uh, indicated in the first hour, there will be chapters upon which I have no outline sheet, and John 15 is one such chapter. So you will look in vain for a, uh, for a sheet for the 15th chapter. And I'll be a little more specific about why uh, in this lecture. Thou didst remove a vine from Egypt. Thou didst drive out the nations and plant it. Thou didst clear the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why hast thou broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which thy right hand has planted is burned with fire, it is cut down. Psalm 80, verses 8 to 16, Passim. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit. The fire consumed it, and now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from its branch. It is consumed in its shoots and fruit. Ezekiel 19, 10 to 14. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and built a tower in the middle of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. Isaiah 5, 1-6. The texts from the Psalter and the Old Testament prophets tell the parable of the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord transplanted from a land outside the Lord's garden a vineyard plowed and cleared of stones, a vineyard hedged up and walled in, a vineyard deep-rooted and well-watered, a vineyard which spread its leaves to shade the whole garden of God. But the fruit of this vineyard was wild, bitter, worthless. Strangers cultivated its grapes and gathered its wine into their alien bellies. And when the grapes of this vineyard set their teeth on edge, they cut down the garden of God. They burned the Lord's vines and grapes with fire 
They trampled the vineyard of the Lord underfoot, and it became a haunt of thorns and thistles, a wasteland, a wilderness, dry, thirsty, barren. The vineyard of the Lord turned back to the arena east of Eden, east of Egypt, eastward from the garden of God. Would there ever be a vineyard of the Lord in which the vine would be immovable? The vine would be immutable. The vine would be ever fruitful. Would there ever be a vineyard of God in which the fruit would be good and sweet and delicious and abundant? Would there ever be a vineyard of the Lord in which the vine and the branches were so intimately grafted together that the life of the vine would never be separated from the life of the branches? Would the Old Testament parable of the Lord's vineyard be a pitiable rehearsal of disappointment, destruction, dereliction? Would there ever be a true vine with living branches grafted in, with abundant fruit growing out? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. John 15, 5. John 15 marks the fulfillment of the Old Testament rehearsal of the dismal story of the Lord's vineyard, together with a concomitant expectation that in the eschatological future, the Lord would turn parable into reality. That vineyard now is Christ. In John 15, Jesus incarnates the eschatological vineyard of God anticipated by the prophets. If there is anything unusual in this, it is the fact that the vineyard of the Lord is no longer identified with the land of Israel. As Christ transcends national Israel, so the vineyard of Christ is, transcends the geography of Palestine. John 15 is a fulfillment motif, an Old Testament fulfillment motif, But as I have remarked before, for the Apostle John, fulfillment of Old Testament motifs in Christ means displacement, replacement, redemptive historical progress, advance, accomplishment, fulfillment. The vine is Christ, not ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel is over, fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. The vineyard of God is Christ, not geographical Israel. Geographical Israel is over, fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We no longer read the Old Testament. We no longer consider Israel and Palestine as if Christ never came. Jesus interprets the Old Testament vine. Jesus exegetes the Old Testament vineyard In John 15, I am the vine. The vineyard is that arena which abides in me, says the Lord Jesus. That is not terra firma geography. This second farewell discourse in John's gospel 
has been universally identified as Unio Cum Christo or Unio Mystica. Adam, you're the only one that is taking Latin. Union with Christ, mystical union. Yes, union with Christ and mystical union. And this chapter and this image is particularly poignant in the expression of the union with Christ or the mystical union motif. Without contradiction, Scholars and commentators have recognized that Jesus displays an image of relational intimacy here. As closely bound as a vine and its branches, so closely united is Christ to his own. The Greek pronoun en, meaning in, is used frequently in this chapter, 15 times by my count, and it is used reciprocally. Nine times, in me, in Christ. Four times it is used in you, Christ in us. We are not in Christ without Christ being in us. That intimate reciprocity is a mutuality of unio con Cristo, union with Christ. There is no unio cum Christo without unio Christi mecum. You're on, Adam. The union of Christ with me. Correct. There is no union with Christ without a union of Christ with me. That's what this vine and branch motif is about. This mystical union in John 15 is consistent with the testamentary character of the farewell discourses. If Christ is giving his final will and testament, his covenant benediction of departure, then we should expect the language of union with the testator to occur. By nature, a testamentary covenant seals a reciprocal relationship between the possessor and the inheritor. John 15 varies the imagery, but the motif is union with Christ. Covenantal, testamental union with Christ. Now, the structural suggestions for the pattern of chapter 15 are myriad. And none of them agree in every detail. Charles Talbert breaks the chapter into three units, 15, 1 to 6, 7 to 17, 18 to 16, 33. He constructs a fascinating duplicate parallelism for chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. True vine, 15, 1, with true vine, 15, 5a. Every branch in me... 15.2a, with you are the branches, 15.5b. Fate of the unfruitful branches, 15.2b, with fate of the unfruitful branches, 15.6. Necessity of abiding to bear fruit, 15.4, 
with necessity of abiding to bear fruit. 15.5c. Neat. But a pattern is a failure because Talbert does not use the vocabulary of the Greek text to support it. He has imposed a thematic English structure upon 15.1-6. Very nice, but not in the original text. The same must be said of Peter Ellis. I have remarked before that Peter Ellis finds thematic chiasms in every chapter of the fourth gospel. There are chiasms all over the place. There are no more, they are no more anchored in the Greek text here in chapter 15 than elsewhere in the rest of the gospel, and hence they are not credible, ingenious, but not credible. I give Ellis credit for ingenuity, but I do not give him credit for working on the Greek text. Now, Raymond Brown's chiasm in 157 to 17 has been reproduced by many subsequent commentators. The A through F descent crisscrosses at verse 11 and the theme of joy in that verse. The ascending F through A prime ends at 17A. You can consult his commentary in volume 2, page 667. But once again, the thematic chiasm is, in my opinion, not genuine chiasm because Brown does not use the Greek text to construct his chiastic paradigm. Mark Stibb has pointed out the inclusio at 15, 12, and 17, that you love one another. Now, this does bracket verses 12 to 17, but in so doing, it leaves verses 1 to 11 suspended without any connection to what follows, and therefore, it does not integrate the chapter. Malacuzil finds an inclusio in verses 1 to through 17. Specifically, note verses 1 and 2 with verse 16. The terms father, verse 1, and bear fruit in verse 2. Now notice verse 16. Bear fruit and father again. Now, Malacuzil's suggestion has an advantage. It has a literary advantage of tying together what appears to be a unit, namely the entirety of verses 1 to 17. And in that sense, I am impressed. But then he extends the second farewell discourse to chapter 16. And he does it by an antithetical parallelism. 15, 1 to 17, union and love for Christ. 15, 18 to 16, 4, persecution of it, hatred for Christ. Now that troubles me, as do the other plethora of structural suggestions because all of them run roughshod over a phrase which appears very significant, at least in my opinion, throughout this farewell, this particular farewell speech and all of the farewell discourses and toto. I am referring to the phrase, these things I have spoken to you. That phrase appears in chapter 15, verse 11, chapter 16, verse 1. You can look back at 14.25. It also appears in 16.4 and 33, and finally in chapter 17, verse 1. Now that phrase, these things I have spoken to you, seems to me to provide a break. It marks the end of a portion of Jesus' farewell remarks. It's a marker. Now if my suspicions are accurate, and I confess they are tentative, then 16.1 marks the end of the second farewell address and the beginning of the third. 
In other words, the numerous suggestions to carry the second farewell discourse over to 16.4 run afoul of a marker, a marker device that the inspired apostle uses in 16.1. There is, therefore, work to do on the structure of the farewell speeches, especially the second one here in John 15. Now, fortunately for us, the meaning of the chapter is not obscured by the failure to identify a coherent structure. The image of the vine and the branches is participative and fecund. Now, that's a word that may be new to you. F-E-C-U-N-D, pronounced fecund, which means fruitful. Verses 1 to 8 are describing the union and fruitful character of the relationship between the vine and the branches. But this union with Christ motif and its concomitant fruitfulness is followed by remarks about love and its concomitant joyful friendship, verses 9 to 17. The chapter then ends with an antithesis, the hatred of the world directed against Christ and those who are in union with him, verses 18 to 27. So if there are three sections to this chapter, it seems to fall out in the vine branch motif, verses 1 to 8, the joyful response, verses 9 to 17, and the antithesis, verses 18 to 27. That's all the further I will go on suggesting a structure. But the theme of this chapter is discipleship. It is particularly the viticulture image which provides the background for John's discussion of discipleship, Jesus' discussion of discipleship here in this chapter. Notice the word abide or remain. It is the dominant lightverter or key word of this section. Ten times that word appears in this chapter. In verse 4, twice. Verse 5, 6, 7, two times. Verse 9, 10, two times. And verse 16. The vine and the branches relationship is underscored by abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. The life abiding in the vine abides in the branches. The life remaining in the vine remains in the branches. If there is a branch appearing to abide in the vine without life in it, with no vitality coursing through it, but rather a branch withered and dried up, a branch dead and lifeless, a branch without fruit upon it, such a branch, regardless of appearances, is cut off, thrown away, cast into the fire, burnt up. The phenomenology of appearances is not the authenticating demonstration of union with Christ, of life in Christ, of abiding, remaining in Christ. The phenomenology of appearances is not the authenticating demonstration of being in Christ. No. 
The reality of identification with Christ, being joined to Christ, centering life on Christ, receiving life from Christ, abiding in Christ, loving Christ, enjoying Christ, defending Christ, that is the mark of genuine, genuine discipleship. How then can the church conceive of discipleship apart from Christ-centeredness? Anthropocentric discipleship, needs-oriented discipleship, discipleship at the mere level of the horizontal is unbiblical. And you can pay your money and go to seminars all over Seattle and all over the United States and hear how to become a disciple like a corporate executive. It is unbiblical. It is obscenely unbiblical. It is blasphemously unbiblical. John 15 is Christ-centered discipleship, not technique-oriented spiritual boot camp. Christocentrically, discipleship is focused on Christ. Soteriologically, discipleship is imitatio Christi, imitation of Christ. Look at verse 13. Eschatologically, discipleship is an abiding, a remaining which is heavenly. I have alluded to true and false discipleship via the motif of the vine and the branches. The antithesis at the beginning of this chapter between not bearing fruit and bearing fruit, interestingly, parallels the antithesis at the end of the chapter. Hate over against Christ's love for his branches and their abiding in his love. Is Judas Iscariot in the background of Christ's remarks? The one who has hated without cause, verse 25 of chapter 15, who has been pronounced not clean in the foot washing at 13, 10, and 11. Significantly, the Greek word for pruning or cleansing, katharos, occurs in 15:3 and again in 13, 10, and 11. Very interesting. The negatives of false discipleship, counterfeit discipleship, include not bearing fruit, not being cleansed, but they also include not loving Christ, not loving one another, not keeping His commandments, hating Christ, hating His disciples, loving the world, persecuting Christ, hating His works. Each negative is a revelation of the world of Antichrist, the world of anti-discipleship. The antithesis here in John 15 arises from two worlds, a world which has been new created in Christ Jesus and another world, a world which abides in its sin. Union with Christ is an entrance into a world established by the Father and the Son and the paraclete. Notice verse 26. It is a world full of the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Non-union with Christ is remaining in a world established by the anti-trinity. Satan, his demons, and his agent, which is sin. In describing how his disciples are not of this world, Jesus is affirming their eschatological existence. 
Christ has laid down his life soteriologically so that his friends may abide in his world eschatologically. Hence, the antithesis here is not only constitutive, it is commutative. Now, this is another word you don't use much. This union is constitutive, it is constituted, but it is commutative. That means it gives an exchange. It commutes or replaces one thing with another. The branches have been constituted alive in the world of the vine, and they have had their life replaced and reversed by the vine's life in that world. If the concept of a commutator helps you understand the electrical magnetic device of a commutator helps you understand this term, then you get the, the idea. It reverses the current. So, you have been grafted into a new world, not of this world, but a world, as it were, heavenly, a world where you abide, remain, stay forever with the vine, the vine dresser, and the paraclete. And the life of that triune God in that arena is commuted to you. It is not only constituted a union, you have been commuted into that relationship with a life that has been replaced with a life from above. The life that is in the vine is in the branches, and it is the life of the age to come in him who is seated in that age. Now, the early verses of chapter 15, in which this relational motif of vine and branches is spelled out, contains some language which is capable of either autosoteric or heterosoteric interpretation. Now, these are uh, nice theological terms which have very simple English meanings, believe it or not. course, one of the reasons you took this course was to increase your theological vocabulary, which you've done ten times over. All right. Autosoteric. Adam? Self-salvation. Self-salvation or saving oneself. Okay. Heterosoteric. Being saved, Being saved from another. Okay. Do you save yourself or are you saved by another other than yourself? All right. Now, I am referring to that phrase in verse 4, unless it abides in the vine. The suggestion has been made that Christ's words plainly imply the capacity of the branches to abide in Christ in and of themselves. In other words, if the conditional language is used in verse 4, the conditional ability is implied. The branches of themselves are able to abide or not to abide in Christ. In fact, the branches are fully able with a full ability to graft themselves into Christ. Choosing to be a branch of Jesus is a plenary human choice. Now, a person not educated at Northwest Theological Seminary might find this suggestion very persuasive, 
In fact, it is indeed quite flattering. This little branch, I am. I'm going to graft me in. I'm able to meet the condition. I will unite myself to Jesus. The fatal objection to such thinking is not that it is Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, hence not Calvinistic. The fatal objection to such thinking is that it is unbiblical. It's not true to John 15. It does not agree with the letter of Christ's remarks. And that on two counts. First, notice the emphatic first person personal pronoun, ego, a me, theophonic, I am. The precedence in grafting goes to the vine himself. I am the vine. You are the branches. First me, then you. Now, I don't know how you can reverse the polarity of that without destroying what Jesus is saying. The one who is able, the initiator in this process of mystical union, is God, God the Son. I have loved you, I have befriended you, I have engrafted you so that you may abide in me. I did it. Now, second, there can be no appeal to plenary human ability here because what the beginning of this section on the vine and the branches declares, namely the divine initiative, the end of this section clinches. Verse 16 could not be more explicit had it been written by John Calvin himself. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The divine initiative, ego eimi, in verses 1 and 5, is balanced by an emphatic declaration of divine choice, divine election. And if God chose to choose, he determined to choose to choose. And if he determined to choose to choose, it was not due to anything in the creature. Nothing in the branches attracted his choice. They were not prettier than other branches. They were not more lively than other branches. They were not more capable of grafting themselves into the vine than other branches. They were, in fact, by nature cut off, lifeless, separated from the vine and the life in him. They were, in fact, by nature part of a world apart, antithetical to the world of the vine. Unless the vine dresser chooses to take a branch and graft it into the vine, that branch remains in the anti-world, dead, cast out, destined for fire and burning. John 15:16 is about predestination and election. It is not about free will and the natural man's capacity to choose. You did not choose me, but, emphatic Greek adversative, but I chose you. QED, case closed, all join the Calvinistic denominations, please. Now, the branches are united to the vine because they have been predestined to be united to the vine. The branches are united to the vine because they have been elected to be united to the vine. Nothing is more basic to the soteriology of John 15 than the vine initiative. The divine choice, the divine engrafting. He did it. You didn't. And this predestinating, this electing engrafting is, surprise, surprise, eschatological. The eschatological aspect of predestination and election should be apparent to you at this point. It is from the throne of God that the events, the choices of this world are determined, decreed, foreordained. 
our confession says, he foreordaineth whatsoever comes to pass. God's predestination and election arises eschatologically from God himself. And it is destined or oriented eschatologically to God's own glory. That is what God is about. He is about glorifying himself in all that he determines to decree to do, even your everyday decisions. Election and predestination are an intrusion of heaven itself into this world. Christ-centered, chosen, elected, predestinated to be Christ-centered, soteriologically delivered, chosen, elected, predestinated to be soteriologically delivered, semi-eschatologically united, chosen, elected, predestinated to be united now to the world to come, awaiting the fire which will consume the anti-world, let us then not boast in our alleged ability to graft ourselves into the vine, but rather let us fall upon our faces and bless the vine dresser, the vine, the paraclete, that they chose us, they engrafted us, they loved us. Let us fall down on our faces and bless the triune God for predestination and election. For that's what Jesus is declaring in John 15. Now there is an anti-cosmos in verses 18-25. This anti-cosmos is the arena of hatred. Union with Christ means identification with what he experienced in the world, the world outside of the world from which he came and to which he returned. It has not been the lot of American Christians to taste the unbridled hatred of the cosmos opposed to their master. Existentially, we may be upon the brink of a shift in that merciful providence as we advance with these days of the third millennium. I will not prophesy the mind of God for the American church in the 21st century, but I can assure you that the world hates Christ even now as it hated him when he walked upon this earth. I can assure you that the Antichrist, anti-cosmos, is obsessed with self-love. And that self-love inevitably clashes with Christ-love. Those who refuse to be reduced to the level of the world earn the contempt of the world. The world is narcissistic loves its own who are its very image and reflection. Unbridled self-love is destructive. It destroys itself. I could recount the previous century's chamber of horrors from the mustard gas of World War I to Stalin's Ukrainian famine to Hitler's ovens to Mao Zedong's bloody cultural revolution to tribalism and nationalism in the post-modern, post-Cold War, Cold War world. Do I need mention 9-11? Fanatically suicidal jihadists? Mass graves in Saddam Hussein's once upon a time Iraqi gulag? 
the PLO and Yasser Arafat's culture of death, Assad's troops in Lebanon. But with every variation in death and oppression arising from this present wicked world, this common thread ties together each depravity as a seamless garment. Anti-Christ. Just ask the Christians in Iraq and the Maronite right Christians in Lebanon who have been murdered for 30 years. Just ask them. You cannot leave the world of John 15 unprepared, unalerted, unequipped. Because I chose you, the world hates you. You will not unite yourself to the world, therefore the world hates you. Or does the world love you? Have you united yourself to the world in covenant with the Antichrist, anti-cosmos of this perishing arena? And all men speak well of you. Hmm. Remember, I said to you, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Verse 20. Being united to Christ sets you apart from the world. Being united, engrafted into Christ, causes you to love another world, the world of heaven. Being joined to Christ means that the life in you is from Him, your Savior, your Lord. Can you live as if you have not been loved by him, as if you have not been united to him, as if you have not been grafted into him, as if you are not his branch and he is your vine, as if he has not chosen you to bear much fruit. Dear precious branches of Christ, he has joined himself to you that in union with him, you may taste heaven itself provisionally, even now. And when the hatred and persecution of the world comes upon you, he is still your vine, you are still his branch, he has not cut you off, though the world hates and oppresses you. Dear precious branches of Christ, he has loved you. He has loved you with an eschatological love. When the anti-love of the world attacks you, he is still your lover. You are still his beloved. Dear precious branches of Christ, he abides in you. He remains in you. He stays with and in you. He will not leave you. Or forsake you. When the enmity and suffering of the world comes upon you, he still abides with you. You still abide with him. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. This is his last will and testament to you. Says the Lord Jesus. I love you. I abide in you. 
I am united to you. I am your friend. And I will never, ever be your enemy. I need to comment on a term in verse 26. On account of its significance for the doctrine of the Trinity, especially in the Western as distinct from the Eastern Church. The term is ekporuatai in the Greek, which is translated proceeds in your English text. The procession of the Holy Spirit. The procession of the Holy Spirit is his incommunicable attribute. That is, it is that which distinguishes him as a person from the Father who begets and the Son who is begotten. It is the Spirit's quality to proceed. In classical terms, the Father's distinct personal quality is paternity. The Son's is filiation. The Holy Spirit's is aspiration. This is the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. The one undivided essence, usia in the Greek, the one undivided essence of the Godhead is distinguished but not separated in three personal relations or hypostases. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As the Athanasian Creed indicates, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet these are not three gods. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. The Holy Spirit proceeds. Ek poruetai. The procession of the Holy Spirit is what distinguishes him as a person, as a being begotten of the Father, distinguishes the Son as a person, as the unbegottenness and unprocession of the Father distinguishes him as a person. Three distinct but not separate persons in one divine essence or divine substance. Now, in particular, with regard to the procession of the Holy Spirit, the status questionis, the state of the question is, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone, so-called single procession, or does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son, so-called double procession? The Eastern Church that is, the Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Antiochian Orthodox. The Eastern Church favors single procession. The Western Church, including Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, favors double procession or the so-called filioque. Now, the Latin term filioque comes from the Nicene Creed. In the Latin version, qui ex patre filioque procedit, Adam, who proceeds 
from the Father, filioque, and the Son. So the filioque term is a shorthand for describing this double procession of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan formula of the Nicene Creed. The Greek church rejects this filioque clause because they maintain it was added later on to the Nicene Creed. It does not appear in the original Nicene Creed of 325, but was added on. Uh, It's debated as to when it was added on. Uh, Most scholars agree that sometime in the 6th century, probably by the church in Spain. But it expresses the Western churches or the Latin Rite churches' indication of the double procession, which is to say this is a shorthand way of talking about this theological controversy that arises out of John 15, verse 26. All this out of one verse, yes. Now, the Eastern Church points out that in John 15, 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will be sent from the Father. This statement settles the discussion, so they argue. Jesus does not say, argue the Eastern Fathers, that the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, but only from the Father. Hence, John 15, 26 And the Eastern Church opinion supports the simple, single procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father alone and not from the Father filioque, Father and the Son. But Western theologians have noted that the Holy Spirit is called, in the New Testament, the Spirit of God, understood as God the Father, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, 2 Corinthians 3, 3, Philippians 3, 3, 1 John 4, 2. And the Holy Spirit is also called in the New Testament the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9, Philippians 1, 19, 1 Peter 1, 11. Hence, according to the Western Fathers, the Scriptures associate the Holy Spirit with both of the persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. Now, if we re-examine John 15, 26 very carefully, we'll notice once again and be struck by the fact that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, says He will send the Holy Spirit from the Father. As a correlation of this, you can look down at chapter 16, verse 7, where Jesus says, I will send Him. And if we turn back to John 14, 26, the Son of God says that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in His name. That is, in the name of the Son. It appears from these two texts, therefore, that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. He is sent in the name of the Son by the Father, 14, 26, He is sent by the Son from the Father, 1526. Hence, his procession, ekporuomai, is from both the Father and the Son. And this procession is an eternal procession or an eternal going forth from the Father and the Son, even as the generation of the Son is an eternal generation. 
what this procession is, is unknown. John of Damascus said that there is a difference between generation and procession, we have learned, but what the nature of the distinction is, we by no means understand. And Francis Turretin says, the Holy Spirit is sent from the Son as well as from the Father, John 16, verse 7. Therefore, he ought to proceed from him because he cannot be sent by the Son unless he proceeds from him. Turretin's Institutes, Volume 1, page 309. And this is the teaching of our subordinate standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I would invite you to take the red hymnal and turn in the back to page 850 so that you may see this expression in the confession, which is the confession of this church. The top of page 850, paragraph 3. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus, the Westminster Confession. And the Belgic Confession, Article 9 The Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Reformed standards, including the three forms of unity and the Westminster standards, as well as all the other Reformed confessions of the 16th and 17th century, concur in the procession of the Holy Spirit, ex patre filioque. Now, is this argument between East and West a matter of heaven or hell? No, it is not. Is it a matter that should have ever divided Christendom in the 11th century? No, it should not. It is a matter upon which differences of emphasis could be allowed because of the mystery of the procession of the Holy Spirit. And at the Fourth Lateran Council in the 15th century, they were that close, that close, to reuniting the Eastern and Western Church. They had conceived a formula which was acceptable to all the delegates, but when the Greek representatives went back home, the Eastern Churches rejected that formula. Tragic. Tragic. I'm not discussing the soteriology of the Eastern Orthodox communions. That's an entirely different question. I'm talking about their Trinitarian theology. You must understand that even as Protestants, we stand shoulder to shoulder with Roman Catholics on the doctrine of the essential ontological and and, uh, uh, ecumenical trinity. They don't ought to disagree with us on that point. And so we have friends who support us on this cardinal truth in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, some of the best Trinitarian Orthodox theologians in the world right now are Roman Catholics with the Protestants going off and becoming Unitarians and Socinians and everything else. So we're not talking about soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, about the doctrine of justification. We're talking about the doctrine of God's 
Trinitarian essence and his hypostatic or personal distinction. All Western Christians agree on these Trinitarian essentials. The Reformed Fathers, standing upon the Western Trinitarian theology, agreed with that Western uh, summary of the procession, the twofold double procession of the Holy Spirit. So, although this is a difference in, in emphasis and understanding, it is not a difference uh, which affects salvation. It's a difference which can be honored with respectful disagreement because we agree, if we agree that the Holy Spirit is God. Procession, how he proceeds, yes, it is a mystery, though I am myself persuaded of our confessional standards that there is a double procession. Do you have any questions? Yes, David. Uh, no, they're asking out of their own impression of what uh, Jewish messianic expectations anticipated. And <clears throat> Jesus, in uh, shall we say, denying the question, is uh, suggesting that they have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them so that they understand the fullness of what the kingdom is that he's brought. They, le- they learn by fits and starts. They give up their a nationalistic messianic hopes and pretensions uh, ever so uh, fitfully and and faintly. Uh, So I I don't believe that that uh, passage is a prophetic projection. I believe that it is Jesus, in fact, reminding his disciples that he's not talking about that kind of a kingdom. David? Abortion is within the purview of criminal proceedings. Does women again? 
forced to grow underground in obstacles close to the capacity of growth. Currently, vaccination and abortion rates are in future possible advances. And this is guy who uh, wants to claim he can live with uh, with the uh, Christian moral code and uh, not hate uh, not hate them, and yet not be bound by those rules. When they call, beware. When they call, evil good and good evil. Well, you see the, the uh, dark underbelly of the embryonic stem cell research that's being proposed by scientists around the world, uh, the harvesting of embryos for the purpose of destroying them, when all that research uh, is uh, questionable as to whether it has any therapeutic value at all. And the benefit which has come from uh, a person's own stem cells being sent centrifuged and re-injected into their system has fought off cancer and other things, let alone the umbilical cord stem cells that we could uh, take and save and freeze and use later on. So there's no reason to create a cottage industry of, of cells being grown to uh, cure Alzheimer's or whatever else, the, all that nonsense that was uh, thrown out during the past presidential campaign, non-scientific nonsense. It's a very crucial issue, uh, you know, as you know, and if Christians are going to stand the line on this, uh, you know, we're going to get beat up by the culture. Ling? Well, yeah, yes, I do. I yeah, I do believe that the Ten Commandments are more binding on the Christian as a result of Christ than they were before. In other words, uh, if all things have been enhanced by the coming of Christ, certainly the moral character, which is reflected in the Decalogue, the moral character of God, and conformity to that, is enhanced. It is more obligatory upon me now as a believer under the Christian era dispensation to obey the moral law of God than it was before. Christ himself does not set that apart. He himself obeys the commandments perfectly. He tells me to go thou and do likewise. He joins me unto himself in union so that I may love his law. So that Psalm 19 is now written upon my heart as Psalm, Psalm 119 is written upon my heart as is written upon the heart of Christ. That I love that law Namely, the moral law of God, which is his moral character, his heavenly moral character. That is the character of God in heaven already. That is the moral, ethical standard that we will have in heaven. We are to begin to live it now. That is the call of the Decalogue. And that is the reason it's in its heavenly orientation. It becomes such a delight. It does not become a burden. It's not a legalistic weight. It becomes a delight to live as if our, we are mirroring heaven's own arena in the way we behave. Yes. Yes, I do. For the commandment is holy, just, and good. 
Yeah, I, I see the same eschatological vector in the Old Testament revelation of that law, but when Christ uh, shows that this is the nature of life in the kingdom, he makes clear what is veiled somewhat by the Old Testament era. I think that's the point of 2 Corinthians 3. And having unveiled that or unmasked that clearly, now from the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the law has a heavenly orientation. And in that heavenly lifestyle or heavenly arena, I can, no long, I can no more commit adultery than I can think adultery. In heaven, you couldn't think it, let alone do it. You couldn't think murder, let alone commit murder. You couldn't think break the Sabbath, let alone break the Sabbath. You couldn't do it. See, because in that arena, that is a perfected uh, 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 moral arena. Your character perfectly matched to the ethical character of God. So uh, what, is, what is there in somewhat shadowy form, even though I think it is there in the Old Testament, is clearly there in the New Testament from Matthew 5 on. Uh, no, we, uh, we still have that uh, war between the members. Uh, we're called to put to death that old nature and to uh, uh, live as those that have been raised up to a new nature. Um, but the Spirit indwelling us now gives us a measure of ability to conform, not perfectly, but in part to the requirements of the law. And in that we delight, not, we do not delight to do it as if we are meriting or earning anything by our uh, commandment or keeping or our law keeping, but we do it out of gratitude and love. I think that's the whole context of Sinai. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I loved you so much to save you. Now, here, show your gratitude by keeping my commandments. In other words, I think that that parallel is even in the uh, Sinaitic covenant revelation of the Decalogue, the parallel that we love Christ, keep his commandments, love God who brought you out of Egypt, keep his commandments. It's fuller and more, uh, more preciously displayed in Christ's own revelation. The eschatologizing of the law from the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is, is more abundantly clear than it is in the, uh, the smoke and shadows of Sinai. David? Well, the negative comments about the law are respect to the law as a system of salvation, a soteriological paradigm. And, of course, the law does condemn, brings us under its judgment. But Christ has taken that penalty for us, and now, as he says in Romans 7, 
the law, uh, you know, do I, do I sin that, uh, that I may break the law? God forbid. The law is holy, just, and good. So there's that, uh, there's that way of looking at the law, okay? If you're looking at the law from the standpoint of its soteriological or uh, condemnatory standpoint, it's going, to, it's going to be a negative judgment. But if you look at the law as that in which you delight, because it's a reflection of God's character, it is holy, just, and good. So you're going to have to look at the context in Paul in order to sort out from which side he's looking at the law. Yes, Skeets? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says that I tell you that if you look upon a woman, <clears throat> you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes in uh, uh, verse uh, 2 and following, he is saying, of such is the kingdom of heaven. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount is the nature of life in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, you could not do what the law commands you to do because you would no longer have that desire. You would not be tempted by it. Therefore, Jesus is saying, I want you to live now in a provisional way as if you are thinking of being in heaven. Now, practically, this was one of the most interesting uh, uh, sermons I ever preached uh, with a comment afterwards. A man who was absolute bondage to pornography came to me after I preached the sermon on the Sermon on the Mountain, which I pointed this out, and said... I've gone to Christian counselors for years, and they've always told me that I, that I, have, to, that I have to beat this thing, that I have to, uh, you know, subdue my flesh. I, you know, I have to cut myself off from pornography. Nobody's ever told me to live with respect to pornography as if I'm in heaven. It says, you set me free. No, I didn't set you free. Christ set you free. Sermon on the Mount set you free. That's what sets you free, because Jesus eschatologizes the law. He puts the law into heaven. You're not going to be bound by pornography in heaven. You can't be bound by it here. So we would say with murder, theft, stealing, etc. We go right down the list of the ten. And we, we would eschatologize. We would project them into the arena of heaven. And therefore reflect, you know, are, are you going to take God's name in vain when you're sitting before his throne? Are you going to say, oh my God in heaven? No, you're not going to say You're not going to dare to say that. If you say, oh my God in heaven, you're going to fall down before his face and say, oh my God, I love you. You're not going to say, oh my God, as an epithet. Too many Christians run around, just throw that thing right off there, my Lord, or Jesus Christ, or something like that. What what do they think they're doing? That commandment says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You just used the Lord's name in vain. You violated that commandment. Are you going to do that in heaven? Are you going to say before Jesus, oh, Jesus Christ? Skeets? You answer that one, and I'll give you a, you know, you'll get the Pulitzer Prize forever. That's an interesting observation. Um, Milton's Paradise Lost is well worth reading for many reasons. But Milton's Paradise Lost has that uh, scene in heaven with Satan 
being told that the Son of God is going to become the, the prince of the cosmos. And he becomes insanely jealous. Now that's brilliant. It's poetic brilliance. It's based upon the fact that pride has something to do with Satan's fall. Something to do with it. Whether it's specifically the revelation of the sun or not, that's hard to tell. Bunyan picks up on that motif in his better allegory, the Holy War. He also alludes to the fact that Diabolos, who is Satan, who takes over the city of Mansoul, which is redeemed by El Shaddai's prince Emmanuel, that Diabolos takes over Mansoul out of a fit of jealousy that, Shaddai, that Mansoul belongs to Emmanuel. Well, this, this allegorical and poetic or literary expression is an attempt of these Christian writers and poets to grapple with that very question. How is it that Satan, who is created perfect, as Skeets points out, how can he become the very opposite of himself. You know, I, I, I can't answer the question, but these suggestions are very interesting suggestions as to how uh, he, he psychologically rebels against his place and against the, the Son of God's place. Paul, you had your hand up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's relative to knowing all that he's about to do. For Philip says, show us the Father. In other words, Philip hasn't made the connection that he that has seen me has seen the Father. It just hasn't kind of come together. It's the pieces of the puzzle haven't gelled. I mean, this happens to all of us in our own Christian life. There are, there are little stations or plateaus along the way when things all of a sudden just fall into place. I can remember 1960, going to church camp coming home, and all of a sudden, grace fell into place. I mean, I'd been raised in a Christian home, but now grace was a very precious thing to me. It all made sense to me. Yeah, well, why was I such a dolt before 17? Yeah, all right? Uh, so it's this kind of thing. It's relative. It's not that he doesn't know him in the sense that he believes in him, but he doesn't know him in the sense that he's the full revelation of the Father to him, which is precisely the point of discussion here. So Philip's growing. He's growing, and we're growing. You're welcome. Others? Okay, well, thank you.